Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Eric Lee. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan, and it's my pleasure to announce today's panel, It's Complicated, Athlete Relationships with Social Media. Our panelists today are Steve Magnus, author and performance coach with the University of Houston, Sue Bird, point guard with the Seattle Storm, George Carl, former NBA head coach, and Matt Mayberry, CEO of Boundless Mind. Our panel today will be moderated by Tom Haberstroh, who's an NBA insider with NBC Sports. Our panel will run for about 45 minutes with 10 minutes of Q&A in the end. If you want to submit a, a question via Twitter, you can do so using the hashtag sportsaddicts. Uh, and with that, I'll, I'll hand it off to Tom. Thank you. Uh, thanks for coming here. I know I, I, apparently there's a Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you got Actually, I shouldn't bring this up, because they're all just going to leave you. Uh, <laughs> got canceled. I almost fell backwards. How's that? But um, yeah, th I promise you, you will be very thankful for being here and listening to this panel, because I think the lessons we will hopefully bring to the surface, I think, will stay with you and your family right here in the front row. You, She's really excited. Um, but yeah, you'll, it'll stay with you for a long time. <laughs> of course. Um, you'll stay with you for a long time. I would say 10,000 hours, long time, maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we're, you know, we, we're following a, a topic that uh, social media relationship with your phones and how to make it better. Uh, is it toxic? Is Twitter toxic? Is, uh, should you be on Facebook? How often? Or what, are the, you know, what does it do to us that we're looking at our phone in front of our kids, in front of our friends, in front of our family? Uh, what does that do? What does the message send to everyone else? And yesterday, Adam Silver, talking with Bill Simmons, had mentioned that uh, he talks to NBA players all the time. Uh, and this is one of the t biggest topics that he discusses is unhappiness with social media and with the phone. And he said, uh, wrote it down, Adam Silver said, we're living in the age of anxiety. Part of it is a direct product of social media. They are really, truly unhappy. Uh, and he said, a lot of players feel amazingly isolated, even though we are more connected than ever, which is such a paradox. Uh, and so we have a great panel here to discuss that paradox and how we make this situation uh, better and how we learn from it. And so Sue, I, I got to start with you. You're a professional athlete, three-time champion, WNBA reigning champion in the WNBA. You've won gold medals. Uh, do you check your phone at halftime? No. <laughs> no. Um, some of my teammates do. I don't know if it's Twitter, social media, or just a text message, but every now and then I'll catch them like, on the side. So I've, I've seen it. I think um, I'm kind of at the tail end of my career, so I've actually been a part of no social media era of the WNBA than like the introduction of it, and now obviously it's full force. So I've kind of seen this evolution, and definitely my younger teammates are more likely to, to, to look at their phones. Do you say anything to them? Um, 
Yeah, I, I tread lightly with it. I don't want them to feel like I'm in there being like a dictator or anything like that. Um, but yeah, if it's a big moment or like a big game, I'll be like, dude, what are you doing? And then, oh, yeah, sorry. And they put it away. Yeah, uh, Georgia, do you ever see that with your time with the Sacramento Kings, is walk into a room, in the locker room, and everyone's just on their phone? Too much, yeah. <laughs> you know, as a coach, uh, you know, I talk a great deal about negative energy and negative noise, and it just seems the social networking has brought more negative energy into the locker room. At one time, when I got into basketball, the locker room was like a sanctuary. It was like a, a place you went to have respect and give responsibility and dedication to a sport. And now, uh, there's a lot of noise. I mean, from the standpoint of it's infiltrating the focus of your basketball team. And as a coach, you're always worried about your focus because a lot of our, a lot of our success is because of mental toughness. And when you are distracted or confused or anxiety or paranoid or whatever you want to throw, uh, we were talking out in the room about players as, as fans, players have this, this thing that they're really, really confident. But there are a lot of players that aren't confident or are confident, but it's, it, it has to come in a form of success. And I think the, the noise the negative energy, the noise, is what always bothered me as a coach. Yeah, Matt, you've worked with an NBA team. I have. About this very thing. Yeah. What'd you learn? Uh, so my byline, most of you, is a lot, a lot less than my fellow panelists, but my company does two things. We use neuroscience and artificial intelligence to make people either more addicted to their phones, so help people form habits on their phones that either the company wants you to form or that you want to form, uh, or we flip the switch and do the opposite. We make you less addicted to some of the more troubling and controlling apps on your phone. Uh, so I have had NBA head coaches come to me and say just that. They have players that are making $20 million a year but can't show up on time or are on their phone at halftime in the locker room and they develop these unhealthy um, and kind of like poorly symbiotic relationships to their devices. And so they'll have a guy that'll roll an ankle and he'll sit on the training table instead of getting uh, the care that he needs and listening to the trainer or the team doctor, somebody like that. Uh, he's on Tinder or Instagram or Snapchat. Uh, and then three days later, you see him walking in the hallway without his crutches because he didn't listen to the guy that told him to you know, use crutches. Um, so why are we looking at that? You're looking at that because people like me sit in a room uh, and design those tips and tricks and kind of pull those levers to make you want to use your phone. So one thing that my team does, we have this kind of rigorous understanding of the brain and how the brain processes uh, what we call the car model, so the cue, action, reward inside a phone. So you do a behavior, and then we decide, should you be rewarded for doing that behavior? Um, if you're familiar, since we're in Cambridge, B.F. Skinner, he invented the Skinner box, teaches a rat to push a button, gets a treat. Uh, we use AI to build a Skinner box, uh, maybe a million X more powerful than Skinner himself probably ever could dreamed of would be created. Um, so <laughs> these, these two over like here. <laughs> But, and I'll like tell you, you. No. <laughs> I'll tell you how we do these things for good as well as later in the panel, but um, it's because there are people that sit in rooms at larger social media companies that have backgrounds in behavioral science like myself, neuroscience, artificial intelligence, um, that can actually tap into how you think, how you operate, um, and actually change, predict, analyze uh, your beliefs and beings and behavior. It's, it happens every single day, and it's 
happening right now while we sit here. Maybe my phone's vibrating. If my mother probably telling me to sit up straight while she's watching this on, uh, on the live stream, but your phones are all doing the same thing too. <laughs> so you, uh, Steve um, was a runner, still is a runner. He ran this morning for how long? Uh, hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, outside, by the way. Um, oh. And you ran a 401 mile, and I feel like you have more insight into the, how the athlete's mind works better than 99% uh, of the people in this planet, just because you have to coach them on not to use devices. They're alone in their head for hours trying to better themselves, whereas like athlete, like team sports, they're, they're interacting with other people, uh, but you have to like really get inside their mind and, and figure out what makes them tick, and do you see an influence of the phone and how that's changed oh, your, your job? I mean, you look at the attention span of athletes now versus even five or 10 years ago. It's a completely different ballgame. Like, my favorite study to quote is they took a bunch of people, stuck in them in a room, and said, hey, like, you just need to sit here for, you know, a little bit. And <clears throat> if you need to leave, like, if you can't handle it, like, press this button and you'll get shocked, okay? People sitting alone in the room, something like 85% of the people chose to get shocked or sit alone in a room with their thoughts for 10 minutes. So that's the draw that we're working against is that like people aren't used to being alone in their head and that is all that running is. Like you're alone in your head and that's it. And these cell phones are making it like 10x work worse thanks to Matt and his company <laughs> apparently. So it's like you're you're fighting against this this problem and with the athletes that I work with, like the first thing that I do is I say, okay, sit your, sit your phone on the table, right? And then pay attention to me. And they can't do it, right? It, it doesn't happen. And then sometimes to have a little phone fun, I'll sit there and be like, okay, sit there, put your phone there, and then I'll have someone like my assistant like text them so it buzzes and vibrates. And you can see it's like their attention just is automatically mm. onto it. And perhaps the best demonstration of this is like, um, how many people have sat here, maybe in this room right now, they feel like a vibration, right? The phantom, and, the and phantom And you go and check in, there's nothing there. That's because part of your brain is always checking for that reward. It's like, oh, this thing validates us. Like, it gives us a reward, so it's like hyper aware of that. This is a safe space right now. I want to see how many people have already checked their phones since this talk has begun. <laughs> we got to do a better job up here, guys. No, it's, it's, <laughs> Matt, like, how, how, I feel like you're evil on some level. It's like you're, you're I, I think you've described it to me as mind control, but we want to, you're doing some good stuff. Sure, so Time Magazine has dubbed my team and I the masters of mind control, because that's actually what we've built, some mind control system inside software. Um, we've chosen to use It's really it. messed up. It's really messed up, but <laughs> we've chosen to use it for good. So the technology that we built is, in my opinion, it's a little, I wouldn't say on par, it's a little bit better than the ones that Facebook and Google and Apple, you know, they have. Their job is to keep you on their platform and keep you endlessly scrolling. So we took that same technology, democratized it, put it out in the world. Now any team that's building a technical product that wants to shape human behavior for good can use our system. So right now we have teams that are helping um, Afri or, uh, farmers in sub-Saharan Africa repay back microloans faster. Uh, we're helping people improve their cardiovascular health, fight diabetes. Uh, we have a team um, that's using it for um, anti-bullying, believe it or not. So all these things that kind of like shape and move the human condition forward, those are the teams that we're proud to support. So we don't apply it towards 
Um, like the largest employer of people like me is Harris Casino that wants you to part with your money. Uh, we don't work really with gaming companies, uh, any of the casinos, things like that. That's not a world that we want to live in. Eventually somebody will come along and, and kind of do that. Uh, I may kick myself when that time comes, but for now I sleep pretty well knowing that we're making the world in the worst possible term, uh, you know, a better place. How did you get into this? Uh, so prior to being the monster that you all think I am, uh, I was a rep for orthopedic and plastic surgery, and so I did a lot of the like uh, in-surgery uh, consulting uh, for implants and instrumentation for people that had behavior-based diseases. So seven out of the 10 things that actually kill us as humans are behavior-based. We eat too much, we drink too much, we don't exercise, we smoke. Um, and we'd go things these, that we can change. It's just things that we can change. These, these are behaviors that we've decided that we want to do and have. Um, all preventable diseases. Obviously, there are some things that you know you, you are born with, but for the most part, behavior-based preventable diseases, 70% of us are dying from. Uh, that's terrible. So I would go into these surgeries, and we'd see people that had diabetic foot wounds, or um, you know, were, were morbidly obese and overweight. And we would do these really complicated, expensive surgeries, and we would tell them, "Stop smoking." stop drinking, uh, cut out sugar, and they'd come back 30 days later and you'd see them in the parking lot with this huge device on their foot that we just spent hours installing, smoking a cigarette. And you'd tell them again, if you don't come back, we're gonna do the surgery again. Do the surgery again, you see them 30 days later, drinking a big gulp, eating the Snickers. And I'm sitting there like, we've just spent $60,000 in you know, machines and all this time. And eventually, the wound gets so bad it doesn't heal that you amputate the limb. And so after about my fourth or fifth amputation of seeing these people that were so overcome by these outside forces that were changing their behavior, I kind of said enough is enough uh, and wanted to work to figure out how we could eradicate you know, these behaviors that are just literally killing us. There's, there's a good phrase, we have too many, it's like kilowatts, kilocalories, and kill us something else. Um, that's what's killing us as humans. It's not, it's not infectious diseases like it did 100 years ago. Yeah, because I feel like uh, I'm guilty of it too. Is I have like an iPhone app that now the screen time, or and I, sure. I limit my Twitter use to 30 minutes a day on my phone. And the funny thing that it does is it pops up a little screen when you hit that 30 minutes. It says, "All right, you've hit your you hit your limit, but you can press this button to ignore that limit for 15 minutes, <laughs> or you can just say like I don't want to use this limit today." And I find myself hitting that 15 minutes like just a little bit. And um, it's hard to quit that habit. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard. And I don't know. Uh, so J.J. Redick in the NBA just quit all of it. He's all off his social media entirely. And he wants to work in the media one day after his playing career. And he said, I can't do Twitter. can't do Instagram. He had two Instagram accounts, a private one like, with his close friends and the public one. And he deleted both. Um, and he says his life is so much better now. And I don't know. Uh, you, you spoke about it, Sue. It was like, he's, he's in his... I think he's 36. Okay. If he's 23, is he doing the same thing? Is he having the self-awareness, like, I need to get off social media? Probably not. No. I think growing up with it is a, a big part of it. You get addicted early. Like, I know, we know life without it. You know, like, I know life without texting even, you know? So I think when you've had it from such an early age, how do you break that? Um, and then, of course, nowadays, like, as an athlete, there's pressure to be on social media. You have brands that are looking to sign you, and one of the first questions is, well, how many followers do you have? What's your reach like? And so there's this pressure. Like, I give JJ a lot of props because it's hard to delete. I personally have a love-hate with social media. Like, no, I think we all do. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, I would love to delete it, but I, this pressure exists to, to keep it as part of my, I don't know, as part of my 
brand, I freaking hate using that word, but as part of your brand um, in order to essentially sell yourself you know, and, and be out there. So where's that balance? And that's where you, you gotta try and find that balance and it's not easy, clearly. Yeah, George, you, you have a, a book, Furious George, in it you said that NBA egos are like ostrich eggs. They're big and fragile. Yeah. Very big egos. I don't think that has changed though since your playing days. I don't think, I mean, e play, basketball players in general have big egos. Uh, competitive athletes, big egos. But how do you think social media feeds into the, the fragility of it? And, Oh, uh, I, <clears throat> for me, uh, the mood of your team is what you're responsible for as a coach, you know. You know, I, I'm a big believer in positive energy. Yeah, and coaching is a negative force. Coaching is a correcting a force. Basketball, you know, you turn the ball over, you, you make mistakes, you foul. You miss half your shots, more than half your shots. There's always correction in coaching. And I think with, uh, with the social pressures, it's just making players weaker, mentally weaker. Uh, I'm not saying that's bad or good or, you know, for me, I, I want to find the answer. I have a 14-year-old child that's in the phone. I want to find the answer how we can make this good, Matt. <laughs> uh, Working on it. But he just scared the hell out of me, to be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, artificial intelligence is, I, I don't know what that is, but it sounds bad. <laughs> you know, it doesn't uh, sound good. <laughs> and so I'm more of a, you know, positive energy, love to come to the gym, get better every day, get smarter every day. And all those things are kind of anti, all the social networking seems to always be my enemy, be, be something that I got to overcome. And so, you know, the culture of basketball is being influenced. The athlete used to be an athlete, now he's a celebrity. NBA people are athletes, but they're celebrities now. And so, I, you know, it's a different, little bit of a different world where I came from. And, of course, the money is blowing up. It's blowing up and being crazy. And a lot of it is because of social media. It's like, yeah. hey, oh, yeah. if you promote this on your Twitter profile, you'll, I'll give you a million dollars or a hundred thousand But I, I've said that in public. I've said I'd give a million dollars never to have anything written about me, never, not, not another good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> Because, you know, the good things you, you, you feel good about, but the bad things have more of an effect. Well, I think the thing that I've noticed the most is because of social media, the highs are way higher and the lows are way lower. Like, you win a game, it's a high. Social media, you win a championship, we'll use because that's a little bit more dramatic, that makes it like a thousand times better. Like, we, my team won in 2004, we won in 2018. The difference in the experience really? is social media. For sure. Oh, yeah. Like in 2004, you just had your own little world. And like, yeah, I guess if you turned on ESPN and you see highlights, that's a part of it. But I didn't know what, you know, the people in this room were thinking or what they were tweeting at me. Or obviously there was on Twitter, but you know what I'm saying? Like what they yeah. were maybe would have tweeted at me if they could have. I had no idea. This time I opened up my Twitter and it was like, poof. And it's all kinds of stuff. Now that was positive. What happens if you're, I don't know. J.R. Smith, <laughs> and you've just made like the most critical error of all time in, in a finals game, and you open your Twitter. That, that low is low. It was already low. It was going to be low regardless. Now it's like 10 times lower. So that to me, like the swing of that as a player, it's really hard to manage it. So e even when you win, it's still bad because you've now disappointed 
another city and their fan base and everything uh, I mean, else. I who cares? Well, sure. <laughs> but you now have That's another, actually a still a high. A full legion of people that are, that are in your mentions telling oh, you that like you're terrible trash, and that right, you suck. Right. And so you, but you, you have, have the last this joyous experiment, you know, experience, yeah, yeah. and there's still 99.9% .9 of the league that Right. No, that's true. Good point. It's mad about you know. It's so mad at whatever. Yeah. This last playoff run, I just didn't go on social media, and it wasn't a long. Our, our playoffs aren't like super, <laughs> super long like the NBA, but it's long enough. I just didn't check, because it was like other other people from other teams posting stuff. It was just I couldn't. It was like I, I could tell it was upsetting me, so I just I didn't check. Literally didn't go on. What is it like being a women on a woman on Twitter or oh, Instagram woman? <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing. Um, no, it's. People say stuff because they're safe. They're behind a screen, they're behind their phone, and they would say stuff they would never say to your face. So as a woman, yeah, it's probably, it's, it's everything you think it is. <laughs> yeah, after wins, after losses, doesn't matter. It's doesn't just matter. always just. It just depends. Um, it just depends. But pe people are mean. I mean, they're, they're mean people out there. I don't know how else to, to tell you. <laughs> what were the teams asking, like, hey, can you please help me with this? What were their top things that they wanted help with? Uh, so in, in an analog perspective, um, every team runs into a problem of players forming new habits or breaking bad habits. So they want their players to be able to like hang, like this is, is a common refrain I heard from NBA coaches, like hanging up their towels when they get out of the shower. Uh, their players can't do that. Like, they physically don't have the <laughs> habit. And I'm sure Coach Carl can, can attest to this. Doing simple things like that, like putting your dirty uniform in the hamper, like, Players can't do it. So on that side, they want that. Uh, and then on the digital side, they wanted you know, a, a total removal. They're running into a problem now, and Tom, you've talked to me about this, but the, the Tinderization of the NBA, and Coach Carl, I'm sure, can talk about this too. So 20 years ago, a player would get to a city, or even 10 years ago, would get to a city, and his sole focus would be to go out and have a good time. Uh, and then it would dedicate a lot of his time and waking hours, and he'd be out in the club all night, he'd be out till 4 in the morning, and then he wouldn't sleep, and he'd play terrible the next day. Tinder has kind of stopped that because before they even get to the city, they can find the person they want to go out with and then in a most G-rated setting possible, they're in bed very early and their night's over. And so this is This is a real thing, by the way. This is a very real thing. Tinderization of the NBA yeah. is like, they, instead of going out all night, they're in their rooms as soon as they get off the plane and they can go to bed earlier because they yeah. match make much easier. This, is, this has been a net good for NBA locker rooms, <laughs> if, you, if you can believe it. They get it. more sleep and they don't drink as much. You don't drink as much, get more sleep, and then it's done. So now, they're doing that same thing, but they're going back to their rooms and they're playing like Fortnite or getting on their phones, and the coaches are still excited because they're not outside, you know, rebel rousing and causing a ruckus and getting photographed doing something silly, you know, in Miami or LA or New York. The problem is, is that these same things they're, they're doing, like being on Twitter or being on Fortnite, they're staying up all night where a player will get into a city, finish the game, get back to his room at midnight, and he'll game until it's time to get on the bus to go to shoot around at 11 in the morning. And one of the teams I worked with in the East, they have a set of players that sit in a room, and it's, it's good camaraderie, but they're up 12, 14 hours gaming, and then they lose by 40 the next day because of that. <laughs> so they're, they're working to figure out how can we have our players uh, form these healthy habits around their devices, but the trade-off is, are they gonna form a bad habit somewhere else? So in order to break a habit, you have to replace it with something else, and that's their biggest fear, is if we remove the device where they're kind of staying out of trouble, maybe getting into digital trouble, are they gonna now get into analog trouble, which nobody wants, that's way worse PR than a you know, bad swipe here and there. 
Sue, have you had a, have you had a coach say like, hey, we're going to go out to dinner tonight, everyone put your phone in a bag? No. no. I, I know people who have, though. And yeah. I know teams, um, I have a friend who played on a team in Europe. And in Europe, it's more like college. So when you're a pro, you, your, your meals are on your own, essentially. You get per diem and you go on your way. Um, in college, it's like every meal, you're together. So anyways, Europe is more like college. And so every team meal they had, they had to leave their phones. Huh. Every team meal. I think, I mean, I, I mean my, my friend like loved it. She was like, yeah, you actually talk to your teammates. I was just talking about this in the green room with someone. It's like, now with some of your teammates, they don't know how to have a conversation. It's really bizarre. And to your point, when the phone is there, they can't ignore it. So it's best to, to leave it. So I think it's an interesting practice that maybe not every meal. I, I don't think I'd love it every meal. My teammates aren't that interesting. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but um, no, I, see, I definitely see the pro to it and why it would be advantageous for like, us to develop chemistry, get to know each other. And there's data to back that up beyond that. One of my favorite studies is uh, with Australian rugby players, as they took half of them, said, hey, go do your normal thing, which was finish the game, get on your phone, don't talk to anybody. Took the other half and made them essentially get rid of the phones, interact with each other. And what they saw was a spike in testosterone, a decrease in our stress hormone cortisol, yeah. and then it improved player performance the next game. So one of the biggest things that like boosts recovery like forget about all the fancy products, it's like actual social interaction. Because social interaction allows you to decompress, puts you in a better like hormonal state. So when we're like stuck on our phones and we're not talking at dinner or we're not interacting in the locker room, like that decreases performance. Wow. And um, so there was a study at Stony Brook that said uh, in 2017 they did a study that found NBA players who tweet between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. Uh, they see a drop in their next day performance by one full point in points per game in scoring and 16% on their field goal percentage if they tweeted between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. That's fascinating. I mean, yeah. that, like, that you can, I mean, we don't know what cause, the causal effect there is. Maybe you're up and you're, you're restless and so you're going to tweet because you're awake and you can't sleep. And it's not necessarily the Twitter, it's, it's just insomnia or whatever it is. But um, there, are real, there are real gains to be had here if you can figure out how to um, have a healthy relationship with your phone. And you know, don't you ramp down your practices, Steve, just like... Yeah. If you go back to your locker room and they all just go straight to their phones, that's bad. What you want to do is have them to like decompress. Right, you got to have that decompress. Well, think of it like during a game, like you've got all this adrenaline, like all this stress, and that's good. Like it helps you perform better. But like if you don't decompress and come out of that, your body stays in this like stress state, this fight or flight state. And when we're looking at recovery, like that's horrible for recovery. So we need to like switch them out of that into like a recovery state. So instead of going straight from a game or a practice and getting on their phones, which being on your phone and like scrolling is also a stressful state. Like every time you scroll and you see that little uh, wheel go around, like that releases a little cortisol. So what we do is we set it up where it's like, hey, practice or a game is done. And it's like, no, you're not going straight to the locker room and getting this stuff on. Like, we'll do these kind of pointless, like, cool-down activities, but they're done in a group so that they'll actually talk to each other. Or I'll arrange for some, like, post-game uh, uh, meal or snack that's, like, right out after that 
so that they're forced to again interact before they can get to their phone. It feels like we're phone. hacking real life. <laughs> we have to like find hacks to create human interaction. That's wild. <laughs> like, is that where we're going? Is that we have to figure out ways to? Uh, well, I mean, I guess if if it didn't if it didn't hurt your performance, you wouldn't do it. But like, it helps to interact with teammates, and it helps to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations with players. It helps for players to have these you know, uh, conversations and talk rather than liking each other's photos, like, I think, I think there is something to real human interaction. Well, I think it's, you know, it's different. Every generation needs to, like, learn a skill set that the past generation took for granted. And as Sue and Carl pointed out, like, I think with this generation, like, they don't have those skills. Like, they didn't grow up learning to have these conversations face-to-face, -face. like, they're used to like being at a dinner table and being on our phone because like, hey, I feel bored, I'm gonna get on my phone. So it's up to us as coaches or whatever to like teach and give them these skill sets that they're probably missing. So what are the tricks that Twitter and Facebook do to get you on your phone? Oh good, I'll peel back the curtain here. Uh, how many people have ever been to the last page on Pinterest or Twitter? Raise your hand. You've been to the end of it. You've seen it, you've scrolled, and you've seen the final page of Pinterest, right? Doesn't exist. So one of the tricks is endless scroll. So you constantly scroll when your feed is repopulated with new content over and over and over again. Uh, Pinterest does something very novel too, where as you're scrolling, you see just the next top of the next thing. So in behavioral science, we have a thing called a stopping rule. So we're often given in life hard stops when we should quit an activity. So uh, you know, at the end of a quarter, you hear a siren, and you stop game. Uh, when you use Twitter or something like that, there is no siren, and your brain doesn't process a stopping rule. So you just keep going and going and going and going. Um, the notifications that you get on your phone, same exact thing. They're, they're here to draw you in. Um, we use what's called a variable reward schedule. Uh, so if you are starting to form a habit, we know exactly how and when to give you this kind of like digital high five to make you feel good. Uh, what that does is it puts you in a habit loop, so it releases dopamine, you feel good about doing the behavior, your brain goes, oh my god, that was really cool, uh, and it makes you want to... <laughs> and it makes you want to come back and do it again. Uh, and so, when we work with teams that, that, that want to form habits, having this variable reward schedule, the, the, most, the easiest way to think of it is a slot machine. So in a slot machine, you pull a handle, most of the time you lose, and every now and then you win, but you still pull the handle over and over and over again because you're chasing that high and that dopamine rush uh, of winning. What we can do is we actually can tell when you're about to give up and when you're about to put your phone down and when you're about to basically, if you were in front of a slot machine, your butt was gonna rise off the seat and then we send you that reward. Um, and then it keeps you in this habitual habit loop over and over and over again. So like Twitter, uh, or Instagram, uh, I watched this like CNN thing uh, that your company was then called Dopamine Labs and now it's Boundless, but the, like I remember, this is how I got in touch with you, is I saw this CNN segment with Anderson Cooper and the guy was like, the guy at Dopamine Labs then uh, was like, Instagram will time your likes or give you a burst of likes and let you know, hey, you just got like a thousand likes. Or they can schedule it out and like not lie to you, but like give you, in pieces and sure. see your experiment, 7,436. Do you respond better when you get all your likes at one time 
or should we lie about it and then it'll draw you in faster? So like you'll want to go back quicker. Mm -hmm. And they, every person is an experiment, essentially. Yeah, so every, everybody in this room, there's pretty good chance you exist somewhere in our server. And you are, <laughs> we have a copy of your brain. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Sue. You're never going to want to talk to me ever again after this panel. Uh, a copy of your brain exists on our server. And what we do is we run these rapid experiments on you all the time. So when you come into an app that is running boundless, we know who you are. We've identified you. And we can actually predict how you're going to behave and what you're going to do before you do it. And so we can do these little things like better time notifications to you. We can change the user interface um, to something that you would respond better to. Uh, one thing we're really good at is what's called um, rapid user clustering, or like a zero-day classifier. So for a lot of people, uh, we actually know who you are. And we know how you're going to behave in what's called a boot call, which is in the first three seconds of when you launch an app. So if you download an app for the very first time using some special ways that's kind of our black box secret sauce, uh, we can actually tell if you're going to quit the app in five minutes or if you're going to be a power user for life, simply based on some things that we can just pull directly off your phone. So once you're in, we have you forever. And that's what a lot of these bigger companies are doing, and they're doing it with What do you mean you have you forever? What is we that? have you forever. So we can, we, can we can experiment on you and, and figure out how you're going to behave and actually mold and shape and predict your behavior to keep you a user of that piece of software, of that app. So these bigger tech companies use that same technology, and people can form their own opinions for, for bad, if you want to say. So, so I hope you're like working with like diet companies or like fitness companies like to try to like get you in shape. Like I, I want to sleep better. Sure. Okay, I have a two-year-old and another one coming on the way. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. Uh, <laughs> but like I'm going to have a terrible sleep cycle at some point, and uh, it would help to have an app to, to help me with that. So how does, how, does, how does a sleep app help me there? Like how can they train me to sleep better? So we, we worked with a really big mindfulness med meditation app for a while, and their whole thing was getting people to take 10 minutes of meditation every day. Uh, to a lot of people, that's really, really hard. It's a hard thing to do to dedicate that time. So the second somebody would come into the app, we could predict whether they were going to be um, anxious, if they were a high-performing user, if they were in an area, like if they were connected to their car's Bluetooth, they're most likely not going to take a meditation at that, at that thing. But if they're connected to their Alexa at home, maybe they were. So we can see all these kind of like obvious and non-obvious things on your device. And then we can decide, should we feel good in that moment to help you form that behavior? And if not, we kind of let you fizzle out. And if so, we can give you that little burst of dopamine to make you feel good about starting to form that new habit and keep you in over and over. So there are larger forces at play when I get like a notification? Like oh, yeah. There's hundreds of people that have decided when and how you should get that notification. Everything down from the copy in the little bubble to the timing of it to how it's displayed, all of that. And so Scientist. how does this make you feel? As, or Sue, like, as an athlete, like, I'm like, A, I'm like, so it's not my fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> There's a larger power here. Um, I actually don't have my notifications on. So I found that it helps. Like, I'm not as distracted. Then I'm also like, there's been this, like, other part to it where I'm, like, looking a lot. Because I'm like, because they're not on. So I'm like, oh, did somebody, oh, did somebody, no, oh, are they, no, not yet. So it's like, it goes both ways. But um, no, this is creeping me out. <laughs> it's well also done. used for good, which yeah. is the best part. Me too. <laughs> Sounds like brainwashing. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing on that. Um, so I'm, I'm struggling with uh, like the more that the more that 
players know about this, mm -hmm. does that help? Like, like, is the education about what their phone is doing and what larger forces are at play, does that education help or does it um, just increase the negativity? It helps. I mean, how many people here have ever heard an employee of one of the big tech companies talking about what I'm talking about today? Yeah, a handful of you. It's very rare that you see somebody not blow the whistle, but really peel back the curtain and talk about some of these tips and tactics unless they're on, you know, they, they're like a PhD on the engagement team or something like that. Um, so step one is like education. Like we come out, we do panels like this, we talk about this in the press to tell all of you what's happening. So as humans, you know, we're not weak-willed. We have the power to do all these things. The problem is, is that there are forces stronger than us, like people like me, that are able to kind of be your digital overlord. So knowing that this God. exists. I know. <laughs> big brother? Yeah, <laughs> big brother. Can you use better words than that. Digital overlord, <laughs> I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying to beat Gladwell. I want everybody to know this, is, the, this, this is better than the Gladwell panel. Uh, and so these, these bigger forces that are out there, guys like, guys like me and my team and these other tech companies, having you know that this exists, you can preemptively decide what type of relationship you want to have with your device. So I aspire to be a runner. It's great that I'm here with Steve. And I wish I, Steve could be in my pocket every single day. But Steve can't, pockets aren't big enough. Uh, so I have a running app that runs Boundless. And now I'm properly rewarded and motivated for taking runs, which is a habit that I want to form. But I also know that Twitter is a cesspool that wants me to be on Twitter every single day and people want to send me death threats when they, I do panels like this and I tell them what's going on. Uh, and so I try and limit and, and bottleneck how much I use Twitter so I don't feel terrible about myself and my life choices and things like that. Do you use Headspace at all, Sue, or any yeah. of those? Yeah. And how did you how did you get into that? Um, it was just recommended, and I was at a it was it was um, last year I think, and I was just at a place where I was like I need like moments to like shut my brain off. Like there was a lot happening, um, so yeah. So I got into it. I can I'm 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 like at ten minutes. I don't I never went beyond ten minutes, but um, I enjoy it. I generally fall asleep. I don't know what that means. Um, Matt, digital overlord, what does that mean? <laughs> I cannot like I comment on sleep? Headspace. Okay. That's working, I can tell you that one. Yeah, they make okay. a Headspace for sleep, so I've been told. Uh, really? so, yeah. yeah, I generally fall asleep. Um, but no, I enjoyed it. It's, uh, since my, it was more so during my season that I was using it. Um, I haven't, I've actually not used it since the end of that, so it's been a minute. But I did enjoy it, I got into it. I did it every day. So I think that's one of the good points, is like Matt's brought about up how to use this for good and almost give us like good addictions versus bad addictions. But like there's also the route of like your body is highly adaptable, like your brain is highly adaptable. If you train it to like know are we going to win this battle, but like we might win some of the wars, right? So things like mindfulness work really well. Um, things like treating it just like we do obsessive compulsive disorder with like cognitive behavioral therapy and like, you know, with a bunch of my athletes who struggle with this, we'll, we'll do things where we'll put the phone on the table and have notifications up and teach them how to like surf the urge, right? What it feels like, how to be aware of what it feels like to want to check it and like how to let that kind of go. And like you're never gonna win but what you do is you, you give yourself just a little bit more space so that when that notification comes or when that urge comes that like you have a little space to choose sometimes versus just like going into mindless mode. And I think if we look at this technology, like it's never gonna go away. So we need to figure out a way how we can get away from being mind, 
mindless with it, and more intent, right? Yeah. So turning your notifications off, great. Like I have to have Twitter similar to Sue because like I'm an author and like I won't be able to write books unless I have social media. So like I intentionally schedule the majority of my tweets so that I don't go in there and check as often. Now I still do it because I'm human and Matt's my overlord. <laughs> um, but it like it's just a little bit more where I feel like okay I have, I have just a little control over this. I put it on my back page also. More? So it's all the way in the back of my phone and then like in a folder in a folder. Yeah. So a lot has to happen. And then I just find myself being like, swipe, 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 <laughs> click, click, and I know exactly where it is. <laughs> so it's like all these things I try to like set myself up for success, and like somehow I find a loophole to still make it really easy to get to. Like does Twitter, like when I, when I refresh my Twitter notifications, like there's like a three second gap. Is that, is that on purpose? Well, that's probably them just calling the server. Okay. I didn't know if it was, yeah. I didn't know if like the delay was on purpose or. I mean. Well, also like the whole fact that I have to like hit refresh rather than it obviously just constantly refreshing. Is sure. that on purpose? Uh, that, could be, that could be part of their behavioral model. So you have the queue, which is your board, listless, tired, whatever you want. You're doing the action of getting those new tweets, and then your reward is having your feed populated. You're, you're now in a, basically like in the hook method. Um, you lost. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> so George, you, 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 uh, you call it a cathedral or a, a, a church, just like the sacred place when you come into the locker room. Uh, what was the locker room like in uh, 1975 versus what it was in 2015 when you were coach of the Sacramento Kings? Well, we had beer in the locker room back then. <laughs> so, uh, it's totally different. I mean, uh, you know, <clears throat> the gym was more of a, of a place of, now we go into palaces. They have great locker rooms and great training rooms and have saunas and steam rooms. Back in 1970, you went in the locker room and go, oh, God, you know, do we want to change in here? You know, it's, <laughs> it was dark and dreary a little bit more. There's more camaraderie back then. I mean, uh, today player, today's player, even up until around 2000, players, I got, I got close to players like Sam Perkins and Della Shrimp and Nate McMillan, even all what Gary Payton and I are good friends, you know, I mean, you, you had more camaraderie with players. And now, since it's blown up a little bit, whatever way you want to say it, the players have friends outside of the team. Before, the team had a unity of friendship. Now, a player, you know, he has a, he has a PR guy, he has a, an accountant, he has a lawyer, he has an agent. He has so many different distractions than the guys in the locker room. I mean, uh, there was more camaraderie, both socially and within the team. You got to know your players probably a little bit more in a, in a good way than they do now. Yes, so you've, you've, your career spanned from the whole, I, I don't even know if, it, was Facebook around when you were drafted number one overall? Oh. You see that? I just complimented, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think Facebook came in in like 2003, four, maybe. Know. And it feels like, it feels like, like I uh, think MySpace was a thing. Yeah. I didn't have it though. But you only, like, you only answered to your teammates and your family and like you had just, you, you didn't have a social network. So you, you answered to your coach and then you went home maybe to the local reporter who asked you a question, but your, your circle is much smaller than it is now for good and for worse, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's everything we've been talking about. It's just, I can't, I really can't stress enough the highs and the lows of it and how dramatically different it is 
now that social media is around. Um, in some ways, it's interesting, um, to Coach Carl's point, it's interesting to see how players are more friendly now. That wasn't the case when I was, like, you might have, maybe you were like a pen pal with somebody from like AAU and you were 13 and maybe you crossed paths again in college. Now it's like all my teammates are best friends with everybody on the other team. And you, but don't get me wrong. I don't, I, I personally don't have a problem with it. I think it's fine. Um, I know a lot of people have a problem when, you know, I don't know, KD and LeBron are working out in the off season, I, you know, competitively, is that weird? Maybe, I, I don't know if I have a problem with it, but it is interesting how much more connected players are with each other as well. That, that can be, again, you can argue the good or the bad of it, but yeah, it's just, everything's just so different. I feel like my mom telling me stories like, oh, I used to walk up a hill and it was snowy five miles to school. <laughs> like, that, like how dramatic, but that's how it felt, like the difference between when I first came into the WNBA and now, it's just so different. In fact, I actually think a WNBA player was the first player to ever get fined for tweeting negatively. So she basically had like a long day and tweeted like, oh, I gotta go to some fan event. And she got fined. Oh, by the league? Yeah, by the league. I think she's like the first person to ever get fined for social media use, like during a thing, I think. We'll do, you know who, do you know who the, got the first check mark? Does anyone know the Twitter blue check mark? No. The verified? Yeah. Do you know who was the first person? Uh -uh. Shaq. Oh, really? So LeBron James has more Instagram followers than the top 12 in the NFL. The NBA's Twitter feed has more followers than NFL. MLB and NHL combined. What is it about the NBA? What is it about basketball players that makes it so much more Twitter friendly or social media friendly? My belief is it's an honest game and you see emotions. You see guys, you know, football players, you can't see their faces. Basketball players, you can see when they're depressed or when they're angry or when they're playing well and they're laughing and feeling the game a little bit. And I think fans identify with that a great deal. And there's more commentary, and, and there's 100 games a year. Football plays, you know, 16 games a year. And, you know, the, I think the game of basketball, one thing I love about the game is it's, it's real and honest. It's out in front. You can't fake it. I mean, when you play poorly, everybody sees you play poorly. When you play well, everybody sees you play well. It's an honest, real game, and I think it's a great part of the game. But in the same sense, I'm sure it just opens up the window for more commentary from the Twitter feeds. Um, we, are, we are soliciting questions on Twitter, believe it or not. <laughs> That's oh, messed up. Uh, <laughs> Nobody listened. Uh, talking about breaking down the walls, and we know everybody now, and all the players know each other. Um, uh, we have instant interaction with strangers on here. So like, uh, here's a question for Carl and Sue, um, Coach Carl and Sue. Do you think social media has hurt relationships between players in the locker room? Between yeah. players? Yeah. It's, um, huh. I have found that my younger teammates don't know how to carry conversations quite the same. They can't just, like, shoot the shit. Yeah. They, like, it's a lost art. I'm just like, I don't know. We're not talking about anything, but here we are talking. <laughs> and it goes, and you have fun, and you leave, and you feel semi-fulfilled. You just had an enjoyable night at dinner. They just don't know how to do that anymore. And that, for them, it probably doesn't hurt them. But for me, it's like, sometimes I leave, sometimes... I'll leave an interaction and I'll be like, yeah, that was, I'd rather have just ate by myself, you know? <laughs> um, or like when it's currently happening, I'm just like, why did I do this? Like, if I put myself in that yeah. position again, I'm like, oh, I did it to myself again. I knew what this is gonna be. 
you know? But then I'll go home later that night and the group chat is like popping because they just want to, you know, chime in on the group chat and text and then all the conversation <laughs> has, has happened. I'm like, we were just at dinner. <laughs> so yeah, so I guess it has hurt. I just don't know if the younger players necessarily know it. Mm -hmm. Coach? My belief is just, you know, I've been out of basketball coaching now for three or four years and I'm trying to figure all this out. And the one thing I think is necessary for coaches is you're going to have people on your staff or yourself have to be better communicators. You're going to have to connect with these people and find out how to touch them man to man, player to player. Because as I said, coaching is a correction. We're, we're the policemen of basketball. And so you got to correct them. Negativity is very difficult to overcome. So how do you do it with positive energy in a form that they're going to trust you, that they're going to move on to get better? Because getting better in the NBA is imperative. You know, even in a season, you don't know at the beginning of a year who's the best team. It evolves. It evolves. It happens as the season goes on. And a lot of it is in trust and belief in each other. And what you're saying here is this, this form that we're talking about doesn't build trust and it doesn't build belief. And a team, a championship team, has a belief and a trust that you can feel when you're on them. And that's part of the problem, is we feel like we're more con connected, but it's a superficial connection. Like, we actually have less, fewer deep connections, and that's why we saw with what Adam Silver brought up, is people feel isolated, despite the fact that they can connect at any time through text or Twitter or whatever with hundreds of people. Like, that's a problem. We have a question here from... Uh... Or for Sue, do you have a different social media routine in the off-season versus the in-season, a la LeBron's social media playoff blackout? By the way, so LeBron says he doesn't, he doesn't post on Twitter. He does zero dark 30, 23. He calls it every, everyone in the playoffs, every year in the playoffs. Um, and a lot of players do this. Steph Curry doesn't post in the postseason, and a lot of players just shut down their public postings. But I wonder if, like, they still look at it. They still look at it. They still they look lurk. at it. I'm so sure like the Zero Dark 30 is about posting more yeah. so than it is about actually Yeah. So out. like I said earlier, I did. I went dark for our playoff run. Um, I mean, to say I didn't check at all, I, I don't know if that's accurate, but like, I, trust me, if it was like once a day, which for me is very, very, would be, it's like super, that's a record. Um, but yeah, I did that for the playoffs. Um, no, my off season to my in season is probably not that much different. Um, I do try to monitor it. Um, it just depends, because I think the, the struggle that I'm sure we all have is social media can also be a good thing, right? It can get you news, and it keeps you up to date on things. So to totally, I mean, there have been times, I'm sure this happened to you guys, I'll leave my phone at home, like, I'm going to leave my phone at home today. And sure <laughs> enough, I get somewhere, and I effing need my phone. Like, there's something in there that I need, you know? I know that doesn't necessarily tap into social media, but there's things that can be good about it. So um, I don't go totally dark at any point. I just did for that one playoff. Yeah, like a year and a half, uh, a year ago, my mom was diagnosed with ALS, and we raised $600,000 on social media just by eating peppers and posting the videos, and it went viral. And without social media, that does not happen. Right. So like, there are ways to take these viral campaigns or social media where it, these little moments, these little dopamine hits you talk about, um, 
you can do it for do good. good. And it's really good. I mean, the ice bucket challenge for ALS did work wonders and it mm -hmm. created, you know, the first steps to finding cures for in, you know, diseases. And I wonder like, Matt, we got to find ways to take that magic or that secret sauce and do it for more good. Yeah. Good answer. Okay. <laughs> I agree. That's what uh, we're doing. Are wearables like the Apple Watch making things better or worse when it comes to being addicted to your phone? And I guess this is an extent, like in five years we won't have Apple Watches, we'll have lenses or it'll be in our brains. So where are we going? Like Apple Watches are the, the first step to something else. So is it Apple Watches making you more addicted to the technology? I would say it's making you more. It's giving you another crutch, another thing to check. Um, I'm very bullish, oddly enough, on wearables, especially in sports. Uh, like I envision a world where we're going to have jerseys, they're going to have little sensors in them, and if you have proper form in your shot, and get uh, dopamine? <laughs> I'm just saying in general. Uh, no, I'm saying I get a shot of dopamine? Oh, you yeah. Shot, yeah, exactly. You will. Cool. You will You will get a soft vibration. Uh, you know, an, an AI, like one that we've built, will send an alert to your jersey and give you a soft vibration to let you know that you had proper form or you had the proper three-point stance or you were in the right position on that play for a catch and shoot. That's a really exciting world to have you be a peak performing athlete using, you know, what we're building now and what the future is doing in wearables and stuff like that. The Apple Watch is kind of, you know, it's day one or it's, it's, it's early. So if, if you hit a shot but you didn't get the buzz, yeah. are you happy? Like if, if you hit the shot but then like you didn't get the buzz, you're like, oh damn, like I didn't have perfect form. Like isn't the reward yeah. seeing the ball I, go through the, the net? Oh, true, yeah. Uh, I think that's when be, you yeah. go like this. Yeah, yeah you, you already have the get natural the reward system there. Sometimes, but if you're, you would look at it where if you're shooting 30% and your goal was to shoot 45%, uh, having that extra thing on top of it, that extra little piece of sugar, uh, is going to make you feel better and want to have a better form, or whatever. Whatever's going to be. That's a simple, you know. Yeah. Simple idea. So we see the downside of this in running, because like wearable watch GPS, right? If you're in a race and you're running along and your your watch buzzes and tells you you're at the mile at this pace, well, if that is slower than you expected, you see people get anxious and freak out in their head and the race is done just because their watch gave them feedback that was bad. Mm -hmm. So like I prefer, when you're in practice, great, let's get used to it. In a race, like, no man, take that off. Like I want you competing. Oh, Malcolm, <laughs> killing it. Jesus. Thanks Malcolm. Um, well, uh, we have two minutes here. Um, for Matt, where does Boundless Mind source its data? Uh, we do it device side, so, um, great question, Tom. <laughs> Man, it's right here. <laughs> um, so basically, uh, a company will import our SDK, it's a software development kit, it's basically the little piece of software that communicates with our server, uh, and we, we pull in all this data from your device, and so we work with the team to decide what they want to send us, so we don't collect things like PII, so personally identifiable information, not interested. I don't care your age, uh, your location, your sex, it does not matter to me. We don't store, process, analyze, don't care. Uh, what we look at a lot of the behavioral-based things on your phone, so uh, swipe, how fast you swipe. Uh, that matters? Oh, it matters, yeah. Where on the screen your thumb is, uh, how long your thumb is on the screen, the speed. So do I, have to, do I have to think about how fast I swipe or else they're gonna like... Uh, you, I mean, you don't because it's, it's just gonna readjust to you. But, so we pull in things like that. What does it tell you? <laughs> So, <laughs> a lot. It tells you a lot about a person and a lot about what their intentions are in each session. So there's swipe data, 
Uh, we look at the way that you move through the app historically, what you're doing now, uh, and then we can make you know, all these predictions about how you're going to behave. One thing we can do, and this is really exciting, and it's going to sound scary. Um, <laughs> so we can actually tell uh, if somebody is depressed simply by how they hold their phone. So there's something like 30, 32 emotional states that a human being can be. So you're sad, lonely, happy, depressed, whatever. Um, and a lot of those you can actually pick up by the accelerometer on your phone. So we know when somebody is laying in bed and is maybe tired or somebody's laying in bed and is doing like endless consumption and just kind of like mindlessly scrolling, we can tell if you're super sad simply by the angle that you're holding your phone by your accelerometer data. So one, we know when you're doing, you know, when you're not forming a habit because you're, you're bored and you're not paying attention. And then two, we can use it to predict and actually intervene if somebody is depressed, which is exciting for like the sake of science and, and health. We don't make a depression app, and no one's come to us yet, but that's something that we can actually see. I just want to tweet out a mind-blowing emoji, just like my head bursting. So uh, I hope that, that felt like that uh, for you guys who learned a couple things. And uh, I think that means we're done. Um, <laughs> and I want to thank Steve, Sue, George, and Matt for, uh, for joining us. So thank you for being here. Thank you. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.